And welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Now I know I say this all the time, and of course, I always mean it. But tonight, I guess I mean it a little bit more. I have a great episode set up for you guys this evening. Some of the stories I'm about to play are downright mind-boggling. But before we get started, I wanted to briefly remind everyone that over at Cryptocrate, we are now offering a smaller, more cost-effective crate. You can now pick up Cryptocrate Lite for the super low price of only $19.99 a month. And who wouldn't want an estimated $40 worth of cryptid-themed goodies dropped off on their very own doorstep? Simply visit www.cryptidcrate.com and click on the subscribe tab for more details. Alright, enough of that. Let's get our spook on. Our first call of the evening comes to us via a familiar voice. This is Mickey's Call from the state of Oregon. Hi, everyone. This is Mickey from Springfield, Oregon. I have a short story for you. At the time of this occurrence, I was living in Durham, California, which is a small farming community just outside Chico, California. I lived in a fifth-wheel trailer at the time on the property that belonged to my son-in-law's parents. My daughter and son-in-law lived in a house on the property. The house was very old. I'm not sure how old exactly. I would guess early 1900s. The property was a huge almond orchard, and incidentally, the property was once part of the Leland Stanford Jr. farm. This happened in probably late 2013. Um, my son-in-law's mother and her family had lived in that house for a, for a time when her kids were smaller, and she had urged me to sage the house for safety of her granddaughter. So I did it. She also said that she thought her husband's grandmother was there. She used to live in the house. When my granddaughter was very small, she hated having her diaper changed, and she would cry through the process. But if we changed her on the changing table in her bedroom, she wouldn't cry, but she'd stare at the center of the room and sometimes even coo or smile like she was interacting with someone or something. Um, When she was about two and a half, I was babysitting one night, and I put her to bed in her room and was reading a book in the living room. The baby monitor was on, but I could also hear her through the open door. It had been very quiet for about 20 minutes or so, and I really thought she was sleeping. All of a sudden, as plain as day, she said, No, but I don't want to kill my mommy, my daddy, and my grandma. Needless to say, I was alarmed. So I jumped up and I went in there to see who she was talking to. 
and there was no one there. So I asked her who she was talking to, and she said, the man. She didn't know any more than that. She just said, the man, and she was kind of upset. So I prayed really hard for protection over her and over that room, and the next day I saged again, and I salted the perimeter, and she didn't do that anymore. I didn't tell my daughter what happened exactly. I only asked if she had heard my granddaughter talking to anyone in her room, and she said yes a few times, but she didn't elaborate. To my knowledge, she didn't talk to anyone else after that. Uh, Thanks for your podcast, and thanks to everyone for listening. Bye. Thank you, Mickey. I should start off by addressing the practice of saging, or as it's better known, smudging. Smudging is a ceremony practiced by some indigenous peoples of the Americas that involves the burning of sacred herbs, in some cases for spiritual cleansing or blessing. While the particulars of the ceremonies and the herbs used can vary widely between tribes and nations, many use forms of sage or cedar that are both local to their regions. In recent years, the practice has been adopted by psychics, paranormal investigators, and haunting victims as methods to ward off evil or dangerous spirits. Now with that out of the way, I have to say this. This sounds like a classic campfire story, straight out of the 60s or 70s. It has all the elements of a great story. But, I have to play the devil's advocate here. I wonder if the child hadn't heard something on TV, or perhaps heard another child say something that would prompt her to repeat the dreaded words that she spoke that night. After all, we all know how impressionable children are. But, that said, it certainly is a jarring thing to overhear. An unseen force coercing a child to murder her entire family. So if this, in fact, is some sort of paranormal entity that's attempting to manipulate this child, I think saging is a good start, but certainly not the final attempt. In a case such as this one, I suggest contacting a local paranormal investigation team. At least, with their help, you will not be battling the unseen force alone. Thanks again, Mickey, for the call, and I hope the activity has decreased, or better yet, stopped altogether. Our next submission comes to us from the state of Texas. Hi. This story happened to my mother. She was living in San Antonio, Texas in 1978. One day my mother went on a little road trip with her sister-in-law and girlfriends heading toward Nixon, Texas. They spent the day there and before sunset they started to make their way home. They were driving on backcountry roads, listening to music and having a good time in their Volkswagen convertible Beetle. And then suddenly they saw it. In the sky they saw a huge bird-like thing flying across in front of them. They didn't hear anything because the radio was playing, but they watched it just fly by them, then disappear somewhere into the tree line. I have asked my mom many times what she thinks she saw that day, even going through bird books trying to find it. But my mom and her sister-in-law swear to this day that it looked like a pterodactyl from their point of view. Well, thank you for that submission. With all these large bird sightings I've been receiving lately, I thought it was appropriate to explore the origins of these legendary creatures. So for a little background, the following video comes to us courtesy of YouTube user Scare Theater. Pay close attention to the dates and the two stories provided in the clip. Birdwatching can be a pretty interesting hobby for some, if you're into that kind of thing. But imagine just taking a normal walk one day, and then all of a sudden, seeing a giant pterodactyl-sized bird flying around. Some people have claimed to see just that, and they call it the Thunderbird. The Thunderbird is a cryptid that has reportedly been seen flying across the skies all across the United States. 
The bird is described as having a body that is 4 to 8 feet in height, and a wingspan that is 10 to 20 feet in height. Its weight is unknown, and its diet is also unknown, but presumed to be carnivorous. Legends of the Thunderbird go all the way back to native tribes all across America. Some of these stories would say the bird was so powerful that when they flapped their wings, thunder was created, and when they blinked their eyes, lightning was created, and that water would fall off their backs creating rain. The tribes would sometimes use the Thunderbird as a way to explain things that happened naturally, such as storms and bad weather. Throughout time, there have been multiple sightings of the Thunderbird. One of the most bizarre sightings occurred on July 25, 1977. In Lawndale, Illinois, sometime between 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m., a mother was cleaning up the kitchen while her kids were playing outside. While cleaning, she heard a scream from outside. When she ran outside to see what it was, she saw two massive birds chasing her 10-year-old son, and then one of the birds sunk its claws into the boy's shirt and lifted him up off the ground. The mother began attacking the birds until it finally let go of her son and then flew away. The mother reported this to the police and described the bird as having a white ring around its neck, a black body, each wing was four feet, and the entire length of the bird, from beak to tail, was about four and a half feet. Some people believe the bird she saw was an Andean condor, which is a black bird with a ten-foot wingspan and a white-ringed neck. Andean condors, however, are not capable of lifting heavy objects. Another interesting Thunderbird sighting happened in 1980. In Arizona, two cowboys claimed to have cut a giant bird with a huge wingspan. The bird supposedly had smooth skin, featherless wings, and an alligator-like face. This description vaguely matches that of a pterodactyl. The cowboys dragged the bird into town and pinned it up against the barn. Allegedly, a picture of this was published in the local newspaper, but there isn't really any proof that any of this actually happened. Although there are a lot of people who claim that they remember this happening, no one has ever actually produced a copy of the supposed picture. Some people believe that the description of the image is enough to create a false memory in the minds of people, so they may think they saw the picture before when they actually haven't. There have been many attempts to produce the image that was supposedly shown in the newspaper, but most of these examples either don't depict what was described, or if it's been proven false. Of course, you can check out the full video by visiting the show notes tab at monstersamonguspodcast.com. So, as for those dates, the first story takes place a year before our submitter's mother's experience. The second, a mere two years after. So here's what I'm wondering here. Was there perhaps a movie or television show that came out around that time that featured a giant bird? Then, whenever a large bird, such as a hawk or vulture, was sighted, that memory immediately came to mind. Venturing over to the opposite end of the spectrum, it can be argued that whatever these things are, they were more prevalent in the late 70s and early 80s. This could explain why there were so many sightings around that time. I have many more large bird reports in my folders, so we will be exploring this topic further on future episodes. But thank you again for that submission. Next up, we venture to the East Coast. The following is Ryan's call from Rhode Island. How you doing, Mr. Hayes? Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm going to leave out my last name, but uh, I'm from Rhode Island. Um, this happened um, in the Warwick, Rhode Island area. Um, this is tough for me to get across. Um, I actually had to have a few drinks just to actually get out 
this information because I've kept it in. I've only told my sister, and she got freaked out, and that was the last time I told anyone. Um, besides the, the person who witnessed it was an ex-girlfriend of mine. Um, so basically what happened was I was, we, we were in bed, we were watching TV. It's in the Greenwood area. Um, she apparently said that I had fallen asleep, kinda. I mean, it was, and, and let me let me retract this a little bit. I have slept walk, like I, I slept walk, like in my like younger 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 years. Um, but um, this was this is definitely not the same. Um, I had told her in my sleep that. I killed Cain under a sycamore tree. <laughs> That's about all I got out of her. Um, she made me leave the house. I was totally sleeping when all this happened. She made me leave the house. I had no recollection of anything until I was about a mile away driving towards my parents' house. And I know that sounds weird. I don't, I mean, all I recognize is, is my first recollection was driving by a cellos and, and, you know, that was by the water and, you know, that was going towards my parents' house and I, that's when I pulled over and I called her and I was like, what the hell's going on? And she explained to me all this stuff. She was in tears. She was very upset. Um, apparently there was much more, but that's all she would say to me. Um, she was saying I was laughing very uh, sinister-like. Um... We aren't together anymore, to say the least. <laughs> um, but it was it was something that stuck with me forever. It was um, I don't know. I just I, I can't explain any of it. I I researched a lot of this stuff. I know there's sycamore trees back in like the early stages of the Bible. I researched Cain and Abel. There's not much information at all. It's just storybook, pretty much. I mean, there's nothing. There's no historical evidence about anything like that. Um, you know, I, I've actually had thoughts of going to like a, a like a, a psychic or a medium to see if I, you know, this is actually like real stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I, and I, I wasn't even a religious person growing up. I had to go to church. I did get my confirmation. I did, uh, you know, I did all the things necessary for a Catholic kid growing up. Um, you know, I went to a Catholic high school. So I knew about the stories. Um, I never really took, I really, never really took too much, um, too much interest in any of them. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Um, this is just way out of the blue for her to say. That's why it stuck with me, I think. And she was so scared of me. She was freaked out about me. Like, she she didn't even want me to come back to the house after all this stuff. And, like, you know, we never had any issues like that before. We broke up because, you know, we had different paths, obviously. But, you know, this was just... It was about five years ago. Um, I'm 32 at the time, so I was, I was about 25. Um... I'm sorry, uh, about, about 28. Uh, maybe it was actually more than that, like about seven years. So I was about 25 at the time. And um, it was just, it was bizarre, man. It was crazy. I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never, ever let this stuff go. 
I still research it from time to time when I get bored, but I've never found any information on any of this stuff. Except for the fact that sycamore trees actually did live in the area, you know, of like Christ back in the day, um, you know, back in those times. And that they were actually uh, a very significant tree back then. But, you know, this is not Abel getting killed, this is Cain. Thank you, Ryan. At first glance, this appears to be a possession case. Something or someone had momentarily hijacked Ryan's mind, causing him to act out in such a strange way. But I feel it's more important to explore the more rational explanation to this event. Perhaps Ryan suffered from some sort of episode or mental break. There are countless disorders that can result in the behavior that Ryan described, anything from bipolar disorder all the way up to schizophrenia. Of course, I'm not suggesting that Ryan suffers from any mental disorders, but I do think it's important to explore those options when dealing with experiences like this, not only to get to the bottom of what happened, but also to possibly catch, diagnose, and treat a serious disorder, a disorder that Ryan might not know about. I realize mental health can be a taboo subject, but in reality it should be treated with the same concern and urgency as any physical ailment. So I say this to you, Ryan. If this behavior occurs again or you feel strange, please seek mental evaluation before contacting a priest. I should also mention that the ficus sycamoreus, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, or the sycamore of the Bible, is a species of fig, also called the sycamore fig or fig mulberry, native to the Middle East and Eastern Africa. So at least in verbiage, the tree does exist, but in reality it seems to be an unrelated species to the North American sycamore. I'm not sure if this has any bearing on the story, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Thank you again, Ryan, for the call. No matter what caused the episode, it was certainly disturbing. Before I move on to the next call, I need your help with something. For nearly two years now, Warren Pon Abbott has been upping the show quality with his talent-laden voiceover work. In addition, for almost a year now, Addie Lloyd has been increasing show downloads and growing my ratings on iTunes. And I don't have to tell you how big of a deal that is. So what I'm getting at here is that, with the help of these two amazing human beings, the show has really taken off, and now I want to give back. Or at least, help give back. So from today, Thursday, June 14th, to Thursday, June 21st, all donations received from you fine folks will be split between Addie and Warren. So here's how this is going to work. If you want to show your appreciation for their hard work, head over to MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and click on the donate link. Literally, any amount will be appreciated. If you want to donate a dollar, donate a dollar. On Thursday the 21st, I will tally up the total and split it between them. I realize I ask you guys to buy things, donate, shop cryptic grade, and who knows what else. But this time, it's to show appreciation for all of Warren and Addie's hard work. So thank you in advance, and especially thank you to Warren and Addie. You guys make my job easier, and you make the show better. Okay, back to the action. For most of the country, at least, school is over for the summer. So what a better time to share a story about a haunted school. The following is Jennifer's call from Pennsylvania. Hello, my name is Jennifer, and I'm calling from Smith Meeting, PA. Um, I 
have several ghost stories, and this is one that's a, just a small, quick one that just like came into my head when I was listening to something else, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember this one, so I wanted to record it so that I wouldn't forget. Um, I'm a teacher, and I've been teaching for 25 years, but my very first year was 1993, and I was in a school, the building was definitely around in the 20s. I remember seeing pictures. They would have pictures of every year the staff would, like there would be a picture. So I remember seeing pictures of staff from the 1920s. Um, so I'm not sure exactly when, but that, that must have been when the building was built. So it was a really old building. And <clears throat> I had, I'm a phys ed teacher, and I also have to teach health. So I had my own health room upstairs on the third floor, and this, and the, like where my desk was behind my desk was a wall that was like a partition wall that you could like open up and make the room bigger, so it was attached to like another room behind me. And um, it was a pretty solid door though, like you, you could hear the other class like a little bit, but it was made of wood, like. This is a really old building, so everything was made of, like, really good material. So you could open it, but we never did. We kept the two rooms separate. Um, so one day I was on a break. So then, like, my lunch or my prep or something. And the girl that was behind me, she was young like me. We were both, like, in our 20s. And she taught a sixth-grade class, and she took them to lunch. And then she would go in her room, and she would eat in her room, and... You know, we would occasionally go over to each other's room or talk or whatever, like when the kids weren't there. So I was sitting with my back towards this partition. And these partitions were, like, really heavy, and we never opened them. If we were going to talk to each other, we walked out into the hall and went around. We never opened them or touched these walls. We always left them locked. I didn't even really know how to do it. So I was sitting with my back, you know, where the partition was, and then all of a sudden, it, like, got pushed in. So, like, the point of it came into my room, like, as if she was opening it, like, pushing it to come in. And she's never, ever done this. And this was, I guess, like, February-ish or something. We were, like, pretty well into the school year. And it startled me. And I started talking to her. So I really thought it was her. And I'm like oh, you know, what are you doing? You're, well, I don't even remember what I was saying because it was like 25 years ago, but um, she didn't answer me. So then I got up and I like went and I like looked in her room and nobody was there. And it wasn't just open a little bit. Like, it was open a lot that I could just walk right over. So I think like if it was to like, release itself, which it never did in all these months that I was there. I've never seen it open. Um, I would think it would only do it like a little bit. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I didn't like test it and shut it and see what happened. I just like was kind of freaked. I think I got my stuff and I like left. So <laughs> a couple like days later or whatever, a month or whatever, same school year, I remember I was talking to one of the general cleaners and I I think I told her what happened, how, like, the door got pushed in and I got freaked out and all this. And she said, oh, she's like, well, you know, this 
school is haunted, right? And I'm thinking, like, but no, like, no one's ever talking about that. You know, we're talking about, like, whatever we're doing with school. And she proceeded to tell me that around the corner was the seventh grade, and she said that one time she was cleaning in there, and she turned around, and there was a man standing in the back of the room, and she said he was all, like, in old-time clothing, but she just thought it was, like, a person, like, a parent came in or something, and she started, like, talking to him and everything, and she walked towards him, and then he disappeared. So, I don't, you know, I don't know if she was just telling me a story or not because of what I said, but, you know, that was her story, and this thing with the door did happen to me and never, um, and never happened again. I was there for two years. That was the only time it ever happened. So I just wanted to, you know, record this and, you know, sometimes I forget about things that happened to me and then I hear a story and it, like, jogs my memory. So I just wanted to make sure that I had it recorded and I didn't forget. Okay, bye. Thank you, Jennifer. There's just something about haunted halls of education. I do not recall any stories of my elementary, middle, or high schools being haunted, but I can recall half a dozen or so examples of paranormal activity on my college campus. In fact, it seems there are more than a few examples of paranormal activity on college campuses across the country. I think maybe I smell a special episode brewing. If your alma mater has a legendary spirit, shoot me the tail. Perhaps this will be a fun way to celebrate the return of school in the fall. Thanks again, Jennifer, for the call. It certainly seems that the activity coincides with the legends at your place of learning. Our next call has us looking upward. The following written submission was submitted anonymously from the state of Kansas. Hello. I saw something on July 24th, 2017 in Eudora, Kansas at 4.30 a.m. I was waiting for my son to get home. I was looking out the living room window, and I saw a large, bright star that I thought was the North Star at first. It was larger, though, and in the east. I saw it drop briefly a little ways, and three lights blink around it. They were much smaller lights. I kept watching, and it appeared to move like a kite would move on a string, all different directions, floating but staying relatively in the same small location. When my son got home, I had him look, and it freaked him out. Anyhow, I watched it for approximately an hour and a half, because I wanted to see if it left. I fell asleep, and I never saw it disappear, so I don't know how it left the sky. Incidentally, I tried recording it on my iPhone, and it just wouldn't record, or show up in my camera. All I can say is it was something I'd never seen before, and it was definitely memorable. My son and I don't talk about it. It was so unusual that it made us uncomfortable and we haven't talked about it since. I appreciate the time. Well, thank you for the submission. This seems to be the same phenomenon that we discussed early on in Season 5, these seemingly moving stars. In the past calls, witnesses described a star that seemed to dance slightly, in all directions, but never leaving the same small area. Many have proposed, including myself, that the star is not moving, but instead our eyes are. Given the vast contrast, such as a bright star over a black sky, our eyes have a difficult time focusing, causing the item we are trying to see to appear to move. As I stated in past episodes, I'm certainly no eye doctor, but from what I've researched, this seems to be a logical explanation for this phenomenon. 
Perhaps someone that witnessed these dancing stars can also train a camera on them at the same time. If the star does not move in the footage, then I think we have our answer. Now, who out there has a great camera and a steady tripod? Thanks again for the submission. Our next call is a bit of a follow-up from a previous witness of the creature we call Sasquatch. This is Sean's call from California. Hey, good morning, Derek. This is Sean from Silicon Valley. Um, It has been a while since my last call. Um, I called, you played one of my calls on, on, I don't know, episode five or six of this season. Uh, I was the one who had a Sasquatch encounter in Strawberry, California. Um, I promised you uh, uh, another call with some more uh, um, well sightings, I guess, or experiences. So here it is. Uh, first off, I wanted to say, after you played my call, you played a YouTube clip of a guy um, who had a recording of, uh, you know, alleged Sasquatch whistles. I'm going to tell you, those whistles are spot on to what I heard. Uh, so that, that uh, YouTube clip kind of gave me goosebumps afterwards because that's pretty much exactly what I heard, um, which was uh, pretty impressive because I never even thought to go on YouTube and look for something uh, uh, similar. So uh, since then, I have, and there's a bunch um, so that was pretty cool. Um, in any case, uh, my other experiences, they're nowhere near as intense as that last one. They're more just circumstantial, uh, if you will, but they're, uh, you know, enough to get you thinking. Um, you know, having a cabin up in that area in Tuolumne County, California, you're in the woods all the time. Um, one time I was walking our dog. Uh, through, I called it the forest. It was just kind of an area in between two highways uh, where you could walk. Uh, there was a walking trail there and everything. Um, so I was walking the dog through there. It was summer. It was nice. So you just wanted to be outside. Um, and all of a sudden, I heard a tree fall, which was crazy because uh, I'd never heard a tree fall before. I shook the whole ground. You can almost feel it in your chest. Um, but I thought nothing of it. I uh, just was like, I'm in the woods. A tree fell. Big deal. Um, but then about a hundred yards later, I heard another tree fall about the same distance into the woods. So I just thought that was kind of coincidental. And, uh, over the years, uh, in doing research of this topic, I've, I've heard of, uh, number one, Sasquatch doesn't like dogs. <laughs> um, and number two, occasionally, um, as a, uh, when they're posturing or if they're, uh, aggressive, much like a grill will do, they'll, they'll, you know, shake trees or push trees down. Um, so again, circumstantial, but that was just kind of a little too, uh, uh, coincidental to, to, to not, you know, at least consider as something bizarre. Um, another time my father, my sister and I were actually driving from our cabin up to strawberry, the area where I had my encounter. Uh, this was years later, but it was winter time. Uh, we were just going to look for a place where we can do some sledding. Uh, so we found this uh, nice little uh, clearing off the side of the highway um, about uh, two or three miles past a town called Long Barn. Um, so anyways, we parked the car, we grabbed our sleds, and we went um, up. We brought our sleds up the hill. My sister ran into uh, uh, tracks. They were very, very clear, incredibly large, human-looking footprints um in the snow um what was interesting was there was a a little creek if you will was where the snow was melting uh so uh one of the footprints was like half in the creek and half out 
So that same print on the next step had uh, mud inside the snow, so you can very clearly see an outline of what looked like a human foot. But obviously it was massive. It was probably, I don't know if I had to guess, 14, 15 inches. Um, so we actually followed those tracks up into the wood line, and then we lost sight of where they went. So we freaked out and just kind of left. You know, my dad wanted to get us out of there just in case there was something big in that area. Whatever it was, it was likely close. Um, in hindsight, I wish that we'd uh, looked even more, um, but we didn't. Um, so we ended up just, you know, getting back to the car, packing up our stuff, and went home for the day. Um, I remember when we got back to the cabin, we were telling my grandfather about it. He didn't believe us at all. Uh, even still to this day, he, has, he does not believe uh, that we actually uh, came across tracks. But, um, you know, I remember them as vividly as uh, I do uh, my encounter uh, while I was fishing. Um, but in any case, uh, the, the next thing, which is a little bit more concrete, if you, if, if you ask me, uh, what prompted me to call was you had just played a guy's uh, call who said uh, he and his friend encountered what sounded to be like Sasquatch, uh, Sasquatch chatter. Um, and then you played a clip afterwards from some guys from the 70s. Um, that's totally creepy because we used to hear things like that often. We'd be at home at night. Um, in particular, in the summertime, it would get really hot. We didn't have an air conditioning in a cabin, so we'd sleep with the doors open. Um, and I would hear things like that quite often. I'd say five or six times, uh, you know, in my lifetime, uh, having been going up there for summers and winters, I would hear things that sounded like people having conversations outside in the middle of the night. Now, our cabin was in a relatively residential area. Most of the people who owned cabins up there were vacationers, so it was never really highly populated. Um, but it's not, you know, completely out of the question that it could have been actually people talking, staying up late and partying. Um, but uh, that little clip that you had paid, uh, played really sounded a lot like it. Um, and then on top of that, we would hear quite often what, um, you know, most people call them wood knocks. I actually don't think they're wood knocks. I think... Sasquatch are doing this thing where they're clapping their hands in front of their mouths and making popping noises. Um, you know, I've tried to uh, uh, hit branches up against trees in the woods, and they just kind of shatter and blast all over the place. So, uh, nonetheless, you would hear what you would, you know, it would, would be like evidence of these animals being in the woods. Um, so, in any case, uh, I promise you this call back. I've been very, very busy, but if you ever have the opportunity, I, I know you, you live in California somewhere, but if you're ever in the area of Tuolumne County, uh, head up to the Pinecrest, head up to the Strawberry area, uh, do a night hike. Um, you'll see if you've ever been in that area just how absolutely vast and remote it is up there and how uh, the possibility of something like a Sasquatch can live without being discovered. It's just crazy. Um, in any case, sorry for my delay in getting back. Uh, the podcast is great. Um, I listen to it every single week. Uh, keep it up, and take care. Thank you, Sean. My first thought went to the tracks you found while sledding. Now, if I were a hoaxer and decided to create footprints to fool outdoorsmen, where would I leave the tracks? In the snow, near a known sledding hill, might not be the perfect place, but it certainly is close. It meets all the criteria. Easy substrate to leave the prints. Plenty of people there to see them, and in a location the creature is said to live. Of course, I'm not implying that the rest of your sightings are not legit. 
I just wonder about the convenience of this particular discovery. The second thing that jumped out to me was your theory on how these creatures, if they exist, create wood-knocking sounds. I've always thought the tree-knocking things seem strange. If these things are out there knocking on tree after tree, shouldn't we find marks on each of the trees? Or, at the very least, a few clubs with obvious marks where it struck the tree's trunk. It makes much more sense that these creatures would make that sound with their mouths, rather than traditional tree-knocking. I'm fascinated by this theory, and intend to do more digging to see if there's any supporting evidence. But I must say, my jaw dropped when that hypothesis was presented. Thanks again, Sean, for the follow-up. I fully intend on making my way up there, perhaps as soon as next year. As you can probably tell, I'm beginning to lose my voice, so I'm hoping to get this finished before time runs out. Our next call is a strange one, to say the least. The following was submitted by Dan in Virginia. Hey there, my name is Dan. I'm about 33 years old. I live in Virginia. Uh, This particular story happened about 25 years ago, maybe 24. I was 8, 9, maybe 10 years old. I was out of a friend's house, and he lived out in the woods, deep, deep woods, down a couple back roads, and we played there all the time. His house was in a heavily wooded area. His driveway was about maybe two-tenths of a mile long from the road, and it was up a very, very steep hill to the point where in the wintertime, when it iced over, they had to park their cars at the bottom of this driveway. This particular day, uh, but yeah, and before I start, I would just like to comment and say, I'm aware that time degrades memories. You know, when you are a kid and you climb that tree that seems like it's 50 feet and you come back when you're an adult, it's actually only 10 feet tall. So I'm completely aware of that. But there is something in this this story that is undeniable. So this particular day, me and him walked down his driveway close to the close to the access road. And we're walking to a particular part of his heavily wooded property we call it the cliffs we've been there many times before and we're walking and you know from what i remember the weather it was fair i mean it was warm out it would have been summertime and we're trekking through the woods and he's maybe two three steps in front of me leading the way and all of a sudden we look up and stop and there is The only way I could describe it is a figure or some sort of creature that looked like it was made out of a beehive material or maybe chunks of wood. And this thing looked to be sitting on a log maybe 15 to 20 feet ahead of us, directly in our path. It it turned around and looked at us. My friend who was right in front of me spun around with a look of fear and we ran the entire way up this steep driveway all the way back to his house. Now, like I said, I'm aware that maybe my mind has sort of added some what this thing looked like over the years, maybe how big it was. But one thing is certain that 
we both saw this at the same time and got that got out of there it wasn't a situation of hey do you see that look at that what is that it was just straight up fear fight or flight kind of moment and we ran the entire way back like i said the creature would have looked to have maybe been seven or eight feet tall and it looked like it was made out of what you would see a beehive to be made out of i have no explanation as to what it was it had a face but it didn't it wasn't human that's all i know um trying to rationalize this over the years Maybe it was a beehive that just kind of started to fall over as we approached it, and our imaginations kind of ran with it. Uh, somebody kind of jokingly told me one time that, oh, I had seen an ant, as in a, a, a tree hoarder, like in Lord of the Rings. Uh, but I will never forget that day, and it was a long time before we ever went back down into that area of this property. So that's it. Thanks. Love the show. Uh, hope to hear more uh, more stuff in the future. Bye. Thank you, Dan. I have to say, this is a new one for me. I scoured all my notes, reached out to a few experts, and didn't find a single thing about a mysterious hominoid with beehive paper skin. Of course, it's entirely possible that this bean is known by a different description, but for now, it's a complete mystery. Rather than me tossing out harebrained explanations, I'm going to ask you guys to help me out on this. Have any of you experienced anything similar, or at the very least heard the description elsewhere? Please be sure to rattle my chain if any of this rings a bell. Thanks again, Dan. This one has left me scratching my head. Okay, I have one more call left to share this evening, but before I do, I have to get all this out of the way. And with my voice waning... I'll do it as quickly as possible. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever it is fine reviews are sold. Each good review goes a long way to grow the show's audience, which in turn brings us amazing stories like the ones you heard this evening. Follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and be sure to join the Monsters Among Us fan page on Facebook. Just do a simple search for it, and you'll find it. I'm still waiting on merch to arrive, so once it gets here, I'll be sure to let everyone know. And lastly, I cannot believe I forgot to do this last week. Two weeks ago, I sat down with Blurry Photos' David Flora to discuss our old friends, the Mirrored Men. Be sure to check out that episode by searching Blurry Photos wherever you get your episodes, or by following the link in today's show notes. And speaking of Mirrored Men, several listeners have reached out to me this past week to let me know that a Mirrored Men encounter was read on another program. I'm going to give credit to Steve F., as he was the first to bring this to my attention. Apparently, in the May 29th episode of Weird Darkness, an episode about the infamous Men in Black, host Darren Marlar read a story about three strange men that seemed to move in unison. I reached out to Darren, and he gave me permission to play the story on the air. The following is that account. I'm 55 years old and have known about the Men in Black since the 70s. Personally, the majority of the visits are, in my opinion, demonically orchestrated. I have learned, due to my belief system, not to make these events complicated. It's exactly what it portrays itself to be, 
Having the gift of discernment reveals what these hybrids are. That is, evil. I call the feelings and smells are all symptoms of a demonic encounter. If you agree with this, then the obvious next conclusion is that these so-called aliens are also demonic. And what does the demonic dwell in? They dwell in shadows. They do not want to be found out. UFO encounters out them and their hybrids and satanic agendas. After all, it's about soul-collecting, is it not? I reside on the west coast of Lake Michigan. My front door faces directly eight miles from an active nuclear power plant that is within months being decommissioned. This process can take up to 20 years. I live in the hot zone range of this very old plant. For three years, due to living on a hill with a spectacular view of the open sky, I have witnessed UFO activity coming directly from the nuclear power plant and fly slowly right over my head. With incredible lighting and maneuvers, including complete standstill hovering, I've also felt that I've been discovered witnessing this and have had some type of acknowledgement from the crafts. It's hard to explain. I just know that they know that I see them. Usually, I witness them around 11 p.m. and after. Anyhow, something different happened last August 2017. As I stated, I live on a hill with a steep drop-off approximately 30 feet from my door. This is a brand new apartment complex, and a very short road runs in front of my back patio door. I should have originally said I'm witnessing these events from my back patio. The road runs to the right for about 100 feet and turns right to the front of the complex. Around 1 a.m., I felt compelled to go out onto my patio and look to the right. Now, below the hill is nothing but woods. I saw three very tall, slender men come up the hill onto the road in perfect formation, walking extremely slow, dressed completely the same, all in black, and suddenly stopped. All three turned their heads directly towards me and just stood still. It seemed like minutes, but I don't think it was. I actually felt an electric charge go from my feet straight up my back up to my head. Not only that, the fear I felt and also a sickness in my stomach was nothing I have felt ever in my lifetime. I knew they were evil. They slowly moved their heads in complete synchronized fashion forward and slowly, and I mean slowly, continued to walk forward and disappeared from sight. I know what I just witnessed. That was pure evil. Now, with that being said, I don't know if it was a warning, a visit, or what. I've not spoken about this event until now. Summer is almost here again, and I wonder what I will witness. A huge thank you to Darren for letting me share the story. You can and should check out his show by visiting WeirdDarkness.com or searching for Weird Darkness on your podcatcher. So, what say you? Does this sound like a mirrored man encounter? After all, most of the elements are there. Three strange-looking men moving in unison. At least the suggestion of missing time. So, could it be possible that the mirrored men have been men in black this entire time. It's funny. It seems the more I learn about this phenomenon, the less I actually know. And that's going to do it for this episode. 
Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Addie Lloyd and Warren Pon Abbott. Audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Music from this episode was provided by Mayu and Coag Music. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To start the ignition. To feel confident. To be connected to everything. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle, but it becomes a dynamic experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open, but the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.